both been common activities among presidents. All of our presidents except seven had children, and all except three, Harrison, Taylor, and Carter, nominated at least one Supreme Court justice. Like fathers in an earlier day, the president makes the proposal and escorts the new justice down the aisle in the marriage between the justice and the court, which, barring impeachment, lasts until death does them part. As I suspect has been the case with most justices, my nomination to the court was a great surprise to the nation, but an even greater surprise to me. My former colleague, Justice Lewis Powell, once said that being appointed to the court was a little like being struck by lightning, in both the suddenness and the improbability of the event. I certainly never expected to be on the court. Rather, I looked forward to continuing my career as a state court judge, having served happily as a trial judge, and then, with equal contentment, on the Arizona Court of Appeals, for whose members I had deep affection and great professional respect. I had anticipated that I would live the balance of my life in our adobe house in the desert, where John and I had many friends and a pleasant way of life, and where we expected our sons to settle. My situation changed dramatically on June 25, 1981, when then-Attorney General William French Smith called my home and said he wanted to talk to me about the Potter-Stewart vacancy on the Supreme Court. The metaphorical lightning bolt suddenly seemed as if it might head in my direction, and I was about as astonished, though slightly less frightened, as if I had seen a real bolt of lightning making its way straight for me. The Attorney General asked me to come to Washington to visit with him, with some of President Reagan's staff and close advisors, and with the President himself. I did so, and on July 6th, twelve days after Attorney General Smith first phoned me, the President called to ask if he could announce his intention to nominate me to the court. I said I would be honored if he did. From my point of view, the nomination was traditional in at least some ways. Like many nominees, I went to Capitol Hill to pay my respects to the appropriate legislators, and, as I imagine is the case for all nominees, I lay in bed the night before the confirmation hearings, worrying about how I would be treated and how well I would be able to respond to the questions. After sitting in the witness chair on national television, answering endless questions about the Constitution, various cases, and my personal feelings on some of life's great issues, I began to think that the hearings would never end. Fortunately, however, Nancy Thurmond was giving a tea for me at four o'clock on the third day of the hearings. Mr. Thurmond, otherwise known as Senator Strom Thurmond, was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and so fortunately he made sure that I got to his wife's tea on time. I was sworn in on Friday, September 25, 1981. At the President's request, John and I rode with him and Mrs. Reagan from the White House to the Supreme Court. While I waited to take the oath of my new office, I was seated in the chair that John Marshall had once used. After my voice echoed the Chief Justice's administration of the oath, I was seated at the end of the bench in our beautiful courtroom, and I looked down at my parents, my husband, and our three children. I will never forget that moment. Oscar Wilde said that the only thing worse than being talked about was not being talked about. I will readily confess, however, that my first years on the Supreme Court sometimes made me yearn for obscurity, 
The press constantly accompanied me in huge flocks. Everywhere that Sandra went, the press was sure to go. With some exceptions, things have quieted down since. But amusing stories do still result from my former media exposure. John witnesses some of the incidents that I don't see and laughingly relates them to me. After being in Washington a few years, we went to a restaurant for dinner with one of my law clerks. On our way out, John heard someone say about me, It doesn't look like her, but it's her. Others have asked me if I knew how much I looked like Sandra O'Connor. Some say, Don't I know you? And a few people, when they hear that Justice O'Connor is present, walk over to shake John's hand and tell him how proud they are to meet a justice. The appointment of a woman to the Supreme Court of the United States opened many doors to young women all across the country. The following letter that I received shortly after I was nominated sums up how a great many women in this country reacted to President Reagan's decision. I cannot begin to describe with what delight I viewed the surprising headlines in Chicago's newspapers the day of your nomination. I actually stood there with my mouth hanging open and an idiotic grin on my face, feeling overwhelmingly euphoric and proud. What it affirms to this 27-year-old female is that determination, judiciousness, skill, and professionalism are valued and rewarded in our society, that females certainly do possess these qualities, that people will find it increasingly difficult to deny and discourage these in females, and that there is absolutely no excuse not to get everything I want in life. Some women even gave me advice about how to deal with my brethren. One wrote, I am so proud of you as a woman. The old Supreme Court will never be the same with a lady among those men. That should wake them up a little. Don't let them push you around. While almost all of the mail was extremely upbeat, there were a few exceptions. Mrs. John O'Connor, care of the White House, Washington, D.C., 20500. Dear Mrs. O'Connor, I am disgusted and disappointed that President Reagan has nominated a woman to the Supreme Court. A female justice, engaging in routine matters, would find herself asserting issues and arguing contentions, activities much more accurately become the Marxist-related feminists, rather than a wife and a mother who respects the psychological components of a family. In view of these matters, I hope that you turn down President Reagan's nomination. C.C. President Ronald Reagan. I received a postcard addressed as follows. Woman. Judge-elect O'Connor, care of the White House, Washington, D.C. Back to your kitchen and home, female. This is a job for a man, and only he can make the rough decisions. Take care of your grandchildren and husband. Senior Citizen Hundreds of men have spoken to me throughout every part of this country, in airports and all sorts of public places, saying things like, I think it's absolutely wonderful that there's a woman on the court. It's about time. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for women. But most of all, I'm happy for the country. Thank goodness for men. I am indebted to two of them for my appointment, the President and Potter Stewart, about whom the following little poem was written. A toast to Potter Stewart, his chivalry can't be beat, the first Supreme Court justice to give a lady his seat. I am still amazed that I am that lady.
One result of becoming a Supreme Court justice is the steady and frequent arrival in the mail of invitations to attend and speak at special events across the country. They come from universities, colleges and high schools, from state and local bar associations, from women's groups, religious organizations and civic organizations, and from fundraisers of every kind and description. The last are easily declined because federal law prohibits federal judges from speaking at fundraising events, even for worthy causes. Some invitations are hard to refuse because they come from my alma mater or from organizations that have been a part of my life or the lives of one of my children or grandchildren or from a close friend. I decided that one way I could select which invitations to accept was to speak at least once in each of our 50 states. By my 19th year on the court, I had, indeed, spoken in each state at least once. But that method of choosing still left open the question of what topic to address. Most audiences would be delighted to hear details of how the court reached a consensus on some hot-button issue, or gossip about the court or its members. But those topics are, of course, off-limits. Above the bench in the courtroom of the Supreme Court is a sculpted marble panel. In the center of this work is an allegorical figure depicting the majesty of the law. My seat in the courtroom is almost directly below this image. The panel itself suggests why we revere the majesty of the law. It is an essential safeguard of the liberties and rights of the people. It allows for the defense of human rights and the protection of innocence. It embodies the hope that impartial judges will impart wisdom and fairness when they decide the cases that come before them.